could all stand to be a little better with money, right? Whether it's investing smart or saving more, there's room to grow our own financial literacy. I'm Nathan Cohn. Welcome to the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. I work at the public radio station in San Antonio, where we sometimes characterize what NPR does as the nation's biggest continuing education course. And that's why I'm happy to be introducing this series for Trinity, featuring faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Today, you'll enjoy a conversation on budgeting with finance expert Josh Sigmund, class of 2001. As a buyer, you want to buy sooner in this year simply because for the last eight years, rates have gone sideways or down. Right. This is the first year in recent history that rates are not only going up, but going up quickly. Yeah. Josh Sigmund is vice president of Legacy Mutual Mortgage. Dr. Dante Suarez, associate professor of finance and decision sciences, will engage him in the conversation. Hello, Trinity Tigers. Welcome back uh, to the Learning Together podcast series as part of a lifelong learning initiatives presented by Trinity University's Office of Alumni Relations. I'm Dante Suarez, Associate Professor of Finance and Decision Sciences here at the School of Business of Trinity University. It is my pleasure again to present Josh Sigmund, Class of 01. Uh, he is Vice President and Senior Loan Officer with Legacy Mutual Mortgage. If, if you've heard some of the other podcasts that we've made, picking Josh's brain as to uh, the many things that he knows about, you know, how to have a, a successful uh, retirement, how to run a successful small business. And today I really want to talk to you, uh, Josh, a little more about your own line of business in the uh, mortgage industry. If you can tell us a little bit about the history, especially in the last uh, 15 or so years that you've been working there, so many things that have happened in the industry that are so interesting, then maybe talk a little bit about the conditions that you see here locally in Texas, and perhaps we can talk a, a, a little bit about uh, where do you see uh, interest rates, especially mortgage interest rates, uh, in the near future. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. Um, you know, this is fun to talk about in general, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to give kind of a first-person account of what I've witnessed and, and experienced and seen. Um, you know, the reality is, is that my, my industry has taken some massive changes over the last 20 years. You know, you, you think about um, if you went back 40, 50 years, banking as a whole was very, very different in that, you know, for sure, people that, that applied for a loan, they were underwritten, they, they qualified, uh, the risk was managed better mainly because uh, loans were, were, were given locally, right? And it, so, it, was, it was probably somebody that knew you, right? Like as your yeah, local banker. Yeah, Bank of Seguin, walk in the door at Old Frost Bank and you know somebody there. Uh, but the money was, uh, you know, you think about it, typically it's either family money that owned the bank or, you know, uh, a risk management uh, a banking decision was made based on the propensity to repay the debt. Um, well, over the last 40 years, of course, now you've got secondary markets. So, so the good thing about that is money is freely available from Wall Street or Chicago or anywhere to buy loans in rural places in America or any major city. So there's this uh, easier flow of money and loans, which allows um, you know, consumers uh, more options, A, and it keeps, uh, you know, basically a local bank literally in the past could have run out of money for, to lend. Right. And we don't, you don't run out of money anymore. You know, the federal funds uh, window and all that fun stuff, you just don't run out of money as easily, I should say. Somebody that so, comes in, says, yeah. I want a loan, uh, the bank will find a, a yeah, way to get that so money. so the bank will underwrite it uh, to whatever um, uh, requirements there are of a bank out of 
Chicago or, or St. Louis or whatever, and then they transfer that loan. And so, you know, that you show up in, in late 90s, early 2000s, and the, this landscape changed a little bit in that, um, I want to say it was actually countrywide that really changed it the most based on my experience. They basically started a product that was looked at now as a liar loan. It, was, it wasn't called then. It was called Fast and Easy back there in the early 2000s. And which what, is, what do you mean by a liar loan? Yeah, um, basically a, a client could come in and they were able to uh, not verify their income or assets. They were able to say, you know, Josh or whoever, I make $20,000 a month, okay? Now, the original Fast and Easy through, through Countrywide was actually a highly performing loan because what they had figured out was, uh, that self it was specific only to self-employed people early. They had to have high credit score, uh, 720 or 740 or above. They had to put 20% down. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they made this available is because, okay, if somebody's got 20% of their own money invested, uh, then they've got something to lose if they don't make the, the, the payments. And if they've got high credit scores, it's not because they don't know how to manage their money and make their payments, right? right? So, the idea was actually a good one early on. And so they started doing these fast and easy loans for these self-employed people. And guess what? They performed because they were 20% down 740 credit scores. And I would imagine also this is within the context of housing prices going up. Yep, absolutely. So if somebody doesn't pay back the, the they loan, get their money back. Yeah. you know, like the, the collateral is there absolutely. and the, the, the house is, is going up in value. So so the bank is going to get it, get exactly. its money back either way. Exactly right. Which goes back to, if you look at it from a bank's perspective, it's a good lending decision. Like you said, the bank doesn't really care. They do, but they don't really care if somebody forecloses, if there's an extra hundred thousand of equity over the last five right. years. Right. Yes. So, so it's like considered a good lending decision. Right. So uh, the problem was, is as the secondary market gets a hold of and notices these, these uh, stated income loans are working they started to decrease the requirements of the industry. So instead of 740, maybe they dropped it down to 700. Instead of self-employed, they allowed W-2 employees. Instead of 20% down, they slowly went down to 15, 10, 5% down, eventually zero. Instead right. of verifying, uh, you know, not verifying uh, income uh, because they would do a, a, a 4506, which is an audit on tax returns. So uh, if you don't make your payment, I can go back and check and say, hey, you lied to me, right? right. They stopped auditing 4506s, right? They like they totally loosened up the guy, not not just countrywide. This is a, in, uh, a industry change that happened in the early 2000s. Uh, and in terms the, of down payment, it even it, went it, into it, negative territory, right? Well, like, yeah. You I mean, ask, it, oh, there, I, I want to buy a house loans. that's $200,000. So yeah. I'll give you $300,000. Here's like... Yeah, there were actually loans out of uh, uh, primarily like California, places like that, they, not Texas, because Texas has some great rules that restricted cash out of, of properties. Really? I, uh, I've always thought of Texas as the unregulated place <laughs> of the world. Yeah, except, it, except in banking, right? Interesting. Uh, except yeah. in banking. So uh, in areas of the country, you would actually be able to take out 110% loan to value, meaning if it was worth 100, you could get a loan for 110. Right. The thought being that you're either going to consolidate other debt, which is in theory a good thing for banks, and or uh, rehab a property, which in theory is a good thing for banks. They didn't really care, so they give you 10000 bucks extra to go buy a big screen TV or a new car. Huh. And that's what was being done regularly. Okay, So this and, is in the so early, this is 2000s. early 2000s. Yeah. yeah, so of course we crashed because eventually bad banking decisions end and people can't make payments. There's foreclosures. Especially systemic-wide, right? Like if this is happening everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I don't need to go into big history lesson here, uh, but you can watch uh, lots of different great movies or, or uh, television series about Too Big to Fail, 
Uh, uh, Presented like the the big short. The big short. It's a great one. Great one. It's a great one. But it really paints a very vivid picture of a systemic idea that everyone else is doing it, so I should too. Right. And also that house prices are going to continue to go up forever. Oh, of course. They never go down. Never, ever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, thankfully at our little shop in San Antonio, uh, we kept on doing business the right way. My, my mentor, Dan, uh, really prevented us from doing the, the gray area loans, which was, was fantastic because you pop out the other side and the, the mortgage industry tanks, right? Um, there were a lot of people going to jail, uh, in some cases, definitely rightfully so. Uh, there was, there was uh, horrible foreclosures nationwide. Uh, people lost their livelihoods, their retirements, and because they were buying multiple properties that they didn't have survival uh, numbers covered right. in, in floats. So when one went down, they lost all of them. You know, I, there, there were literally bus loads of people coming from California, literally bus loads to buy out entire new uh, neighborhoods of builders for investment properties. Uh-huh. And, you know, they didn't have money to their name. So they were taking out 110% loans to get the whatever little down payment they needed. And they were buying these houses, owner-occupied when they were really investment properties. And of course, they foreclosed and they foreclosed in massive amounts, right? Right. And, so, and I think I, there was also people that they didn't do, really do anything wrong, but were basically ill-advised. Absolutely. To get a loan with a teaser rate and absolutely. all of these things. That they, they, it, they, yeah, they thought that they were going to, I mean, a, a banker's telling them, oh, for sure, you're going to be able to make no these payments. No problem at all. In reality, yeah. knowing that they're not going to. Yeah. Like, it's almost like lending them for them to foreclose. Yeah, it, it was really a... a, a you know, the question always comes up, well, who's who's at fault, right? And I think the answer is everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a banker shouldn't be giving ill advice on one side. A consumer shouldn't be signing a document stating that they make $20,000 a month when they don't. Right. So, you know, it's it's hard. It's easy to it's easier to point the picture, at, uh, point the finger at the bank. But there are a lot of people that that uh, that for sure knew what they were doing when they signed the documents, right? Um, that being said, the good news is that out of that came... Uh, and uh, industry-wide tightening and reforms, you know, the, between the Dodd-Frank, uh, Dodd all sorts of reforms that came out of it, the mortgage industry really got a lot more standardized, which is great. So I uh, want to ask you about that. I mean, like, uh-huh. without getting too much into the politics of it, like, how do you feel that the regulations are working? And to what extent do you feel that the industry can regulate itself? Because we always hear question. the industry saying, like, yeah. oh, we're going to regulate ourselves. We don't need the, the, the government to do this. But um, it, it seems like at yeah. least till 2006, the industry was not appropriately regulating itself. Yeah. So uh, without telling you who I vote for one way or the other, I'll just say this. Right. So before 2008 uh, and before uh, Dodd-Frank, all that fun stuff, the reality was there was way too loose of regulation. We know. Right. Mm-hmm. What came out of it in 2010, 11, 12 is too much regulation, too much documentation. So we okay? need to find some healthy middle. There's, there's got to be a healthy medium. And the re- so think of it like this. There's, there's two things, you know, um, one great idea, it's a great idea that came out of uh, Dodd-Frank was that uh, a, a, a white colored guy, a brown colored guy, a yellow colored guy, a purple colored guy that all get, went to the same bank should not be given separate rates. That is a true, That's that absolutely should, is a great idea, Right. Um, same so thing basically with, the industry was extracting as much as they could uh, out of, uh, uh, out of clients that in some ways you feel like you have a, a vast, uh, amount of options, but once you get with sitting down with someone, you're really at their mercy in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're at the mercy, just like, a, you know, just like there's, 
five uh, percent of all lawyers are not good. Five percent of doctors will cut your wrong arm off. There's right. definitely five percent of lenders or any industry that that are not doing what's in the the client's best interest. Uh, and so I, I'm thinking of something psychological that uh, somehow if you go to HEB and you're looking at you know like twenty different types of tortillas. They're there. They're, the yeah. competition is there, and if there's one that's really expensive, you're not. You're going to stay away from that. Uh, something like that should happen in the mortgage industry, but I feel like the vast majority of us, once you make a contact with somebody, then then that somebody's going to tell you that's the best rate. Uh, but a lot of people don't go into the process of actually looking to see. Yeah, I'm what, gonna, what's I love out there. you ask that question. Go and expand on that. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to our conversation with Josh Sigmund and Dr. Dante Suarez about budgeting. Uh, this is an area that I uh, totally upset at my industry for, which is uh, I do not believe that a mortgage lender should be a uh, teller, meaning uh, there's a difference between a consultant and a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so in, uh, it's a profession. You have to be licensed in the profession. You better treat it like one, ask the right questions. There should not be the ability, in my opinion, to uh, put billboards up to say the rate of the day is blank because there is the, what people need to understand, there is no such thing as a rate of the day. There's a right. range of rates. Right. And the consumer, if they are informed, should be able to choose between higher rates with lower fees or lower rates with higher fees. And what's recommended should be based on the goals of the individual, meaning San Antonio is military city USA. Uh, we have a lot of veterans that are going to appear for two or three years, and for sure, they're going to be shipped out somewhere else, right? Right. In the short term, costs matter most. So they shouldn't be buying a house in many ways. Uh, or they should take a higher rate with zero or little fees. Of getting in and uh, out of it? To get in and out of it, yeah. Uh-huh. On the flip side, somebody walks in and says, Josh, I'm a grandma. This is going to be my last house. If I'm a dream house, I will never move again until they take me out in a pine box. Right. They should get the lowest rate, even if it costs more, because over time, rate matters most. Right. But if the uh, if the consumer is not advised on either and they walk in and say, I want the lowest rate you've got and a retail bank or a, a commodity type uh, banker just says, OK, no problem. Your rate is blank. They're not serving the community, certainly not the person that's sitting in front of them. And so they need to, you know, as a consumer, we need to go in with better questions or go to a consultant that will understand how long do you anticipate keeping the property for? What's your maximum payment goal and why? What's your cash goal and why? You know, going back to our, our previous dialogue about should somebody put 50% down on a house? Not always. Right. If they don't have any retirement money at all, which right. happens a lot, and they uh-huh. walk in and they, 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 they're they selling their house they were in for 20 years and they've got 150000 bucks, and they think that they should roll all that money in their new house to get their payment as low as possible, right. but they've got zero retirement money, my answer all day long is no. Right. Put down as much money as it takes to make your payment comfortable not a dollar more, right? Because you can borrow for this house. You cannot borrow for retirement, right? If it, and, it feels like you should go into that conversation with a, a mortgage lender with your financial planner right next to you, right, or, or with that kind of a hat on as well. Yeah, uh, or and here's a, b- a better way to even say it: If you go into a, a meeting or over the phone, or especially now with the internet, which drives me nuts, 
you do you go into a quote unquote conversation over the internet and they're not asking questions like how long are you going to be keeping this property right. for it's a mistake people are chasing the lowest rated lowest fees or and I'm not saying that's not the right answer for some but it is not a one size fits all Right. Yeah, and I think this also applies to people that are thinking about refinancing. Oh God, we right. talked about your own personal. Yes, yeah. like you know, I'm, I'm a finance professor, and yet I bought a house in 2006 uh, when interest rates were much higher. As they went down, it made sense to uh, refinance, but I ended up, I would say, uh, frankly, stupidly, refinancing twice. I should have waited till the last moment, where I say, okay, now it's time to refinance, and this gets to the, I think they call it churning. Yep. Uh, where where they people are pushing on you refinance refinance refinance. Yep. I think most of us don't um, spend enough time thinking about the math. Yes, like it's what some like ten thousand dollars to refinance. Uh, I mean, depending on the circumstances, but it can be it can be it, it can it be can, a lot. It can be a lot of money. So uh, you really have to think about how long are you going to be in that new loan yep. for it to make sense. Right? Yeah, so uh, I love that you, you brought that up because this is not a new story for me. Like I see this happen all the time. Um, so in theory, just like there's not a rate of the day, there shouldn't be a set cost for refis either. Like you're saying 10,000. Well, no, there, there are refinances that you can do for nothing in theory. Really? By rolling it Where into do I the rate. Those? Right. <laughs> uh, so you would, you would assume a higher rate than the lowest rate possible, but you would assume ah. zero cost. So what, what it goes back to is your your mortgage pr uh, provider should be giving you what's called a break-even analysis. Right. So in option A, option B, and option C, the payment is higher, mid, or low. The rate's higher, mid, or low, but the costs are lower, mid, or high. Right. So based on what you're looking at in option one, you have a higher rate, higher payment, but you break even in one year. Meaning, sir, do you plan to keep this house for at least one year? If so, for sure, this is an okay option. If not, don't do it at all. Versus I, I option three, enough of that, yeah. the lowest rate the, the, with higher fees, but your break even is five years. Right. Sir, are you for sure going to keep this house, not pay extra, not pay off, not refinance for at least five years? If so, we can look at that. If not, this is not the best option for you. Right. And so that's exactly goes to the same dialogue. But um, we see this a lot. In fact, one thing that drives me nuts is uh, uh, something that's happening with lead generation for mortgage companies. So uh, obviously public records, uh, court filings are public record. So the second a loan is, is, is filed or a, a, a change of deed is filed at the courthouse, there are literally people that go through there, get that information and sell it as leads to uh, to mortgage professionals, right? right. So oh, you just refinance. Why don't you refinance you, again? Yeah, you right. just bought this house. Let me refinance you in two months, right? Right. So give you, give you an example. I had a client of mine that's a veteran, okay? Uh, and there are these things called a streamlined refinance, uh, which is basically a VA Earl, a VA interest reduction loan. It's a, a special loan with, which requires no additional appraisal, requires no additional underwriting for a veteran. As long as their payment drops a certain amount, they don't have to do any. So it's uh, an easy way to, right. to drop right. your rate. Right. Uh, and so people are buying these lists of veterans, swooping in three months later, mailing out or calling our past clients. I or get about three of those a day. About three a day. People pick up the phone and they're being told, oh yeah, you can get a, a point lower rate. Let me just send you some documents. You don't have to send me anything and we'll refinance you in three weeks. And they're doing it. I had a client of mine that was charged. Uh, so points are, by the way, uh, higher closing costs. A point is 1% of your loan amount. Right. So if you pay five points, you're paying an extra above other closing costs, 5% of your closing. I had a guy that did six points on his loan because he was ill-informed. He ended up right. spending on $150,000 
14,000 extra closing costs three months after he spent 4,000 in closing costs Yikes. to drop his rate a, a point. He would have to be there for 22 more years to break even. Wow. 22. The dude is a veteran. He's not going to be there for 22 years. Right. It's not going to happen. And so that happens, unfortunately, too much. So what's really crazy now is, okay, going back to the history and where we are in this in this cycle, because it right. is always cyclical, right? So we went from no documentation basically 15 years ago now to too much documentation about five years ago. So mm-hmm. people were complaining. Uh, now we're going back. We're actually seeing stated income loans again out of California. There's I'm really? aware of two lenders that are doing stated income loans all over again. I'm like, hey, dude, have you ever read the news before? Do you remember what happened 10 years ago? This is yes. not a good, uh, this doesn't end well, right? Right. Um, so we're seeing that kind of trend. Um, you know, one thing I, I remember is be greedy when people are fearful, be fearful when people are greedy. I, I believe Warren Buffett said that. Yes. He has more bees behind his name than mine. So I will go ahead and listen to his advice. Right. Uh, I remember back in six, seven and eight, everyone was buying because properties only go up in value. And in fact, right. we'd buy 15 more investment properties than we could afford. Uh, well, guess what? You look around the nation, people are buying in a, in a craze right now uh, because everyone thinks the values are going to keep going up. It's not. So we're not at the end yet, but we're, we're nearing the end of this cycle for sure uh, as far as appreciation goes. Uh, rates, rates went from high back in uh, 2004, five and six. They dropped, they dropped, they dropped again. They got the lowest they've ever been the year, two years ago, mm-hmm. down in the threes in some cases. Rates have already gone up a point and a half since January 1st of this year, depending on the loan type, about a point and a half already. The Fed has already come out and said they expect to increase the federal funds rate an additional three times this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they follow through with that, we we would expect rates to continue to increase over the course of the year. Um, inventory is the third thing that you look at. Uh, the, the appreciation, so prices increasing, is a function of economics, right? If you have Fewer houses on the market than there are buyers. Prices will go up. Supply and demand. We have very low inventory nationwide. There are pockets, of course, that don't that don't meet that. But for the most part, in Texas, as an example, average inventory is less than seven months statewide. That's why it's considered a seller's market because sellers can charge full price and get it or mm-hmm. more. You'll have multiple offers for the same house. Um, so that's a buyer beware. Uh, but here's what I would tell people right now as far as the outlook. The good news is, is that Texas is more insulated than most states for a few factors, a few reasons. Number one is we do have higher property taxes, which sounds bad, but we don't have state income tax. Mm-hmm. What that does is by having a, a high, uh, like on average in major cities in Texas, somewhere around 2.5% is what the property tax rate is. In the county is a little bit lower, but on average 2.5. Well, that slows down appreciation because there's a point where the average person cannot afford the payment on a house in large part because the taxes are too high. Right. Right. So it's has slowed down. We've never had a 40% increase in values in a year, like other cities and states have. Like California. Or 20, yeah. Exactly. We don't have 20, 15, 30% increases for the most part because in large part taxes. Okay. The second thing we have going for us, uh, we talked about in a different segment is cash out refinances. Texas made a, a law called the Texas A6 rules which basically limits cash out refinances to no more than 80% of the value of the house. Uh, separate of other cities and states in the past have done up to 110%. Again, so, so we have the, we, we've slowed down that craze of loans uh, outpacing values, right? right. So we have yeah. a little bit of cushion in there for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Um, the, for the most part, homes 
that have closed in the last 10 years actually did have consumers that qualified because for the last 10 years, we've been actually underwriting loans. Again, you know, the previous right. to that, they were stated income loans. We're underwriting. So we're not going to see the same foreclosure rates when when the market turns as we have in the past, right? Right. But specific to te- Texas, we also have a generation of, and creation of new jobs here. We have people moving to Texas. Right. It's growing. We don't have yeah. people leaving Texas, which means that people that have homes can expect at least the values to stay stable or grow for the foreseeable future because they can get out. Somebody needs to have a house. They need right. to rent a house. Uh, not everyone that has a family or a dog wants to live in an apartment. So, Especially downtown San Antonio. Especially it's downtown booming. San Antonio. Exactly Come back. Right. Yeah. yeah you you finally area, have yeah. sky rises with condos that are like other cities. It's exactly. insane. It's, a, it's an actual city now. Yeah. So, um, so the good news is, is that for the... F- foreseeable future, we should be fine with values, although I expect it to slow down and possibly go backwards uh, uh, here at, we're at the end of the cycle. Rates are going up. We already talked about that. So if you are if you are thinking about buying or selling a house, what should you do? My answer is do it as quickly as possible. If you're going to sell a house, the, you know by definition, you buy low, sell high. House prices are definitely high in a seller's market. So you can get pretty much top dollar right now uh, going into the summertime, you have more people buying homes in the summertime than the it's winter. It's better to buy in the winter? Uh, it's better to buy in the winter, sell in the summer uh, if you have a choice. You don't always have that choice. Right. But as a seller, for sure, you want the most people in your houses, people that have kids want to move in the summer. So put in the market April, May, June, July. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't put in the market in uh, December, January, February if you have a choice. Right. As a buyer with no house, yeah, you want to buy in the winter. But if you're selling a house in the summer, you're probably going to buy a house in the summer too, right? Got it. Yeah. So, um, uh, but buy sooner rather than later. As a buyer, you want to buy sooner in this year simply because for the last eight years, rates have gone sideways or down. Right. This is the first year in recent history that rates are, are not only going up, but going up quickly. Yeah. And so it's actually, you will save money buying out of a lease. So your lease doesn't expire until September. Buy out of that lease. Spend that extra thousand or two thousand bucks to, to get out of it to buy now, mm-hmm. as opposed to having a rate that could potentially be a quarter, half, three quarters or a point yeah, higher over the lifetime September, of a 30 over, year loan. That's going to be a lot of money. Absolutely. Huh? You'll save that much money in the first year on a $200,000 house, let alone right. the second, third and fifth. Um, so uh, buy quickly, sell quickly uh, is kind of my answer right now. Uh, but beware, you know, you don't want to overbuy uh, because we're, we're at this. What's the number usually like a third of your salary? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, there's something called a housing ratio in lending. Housing ratio is exactly what you just said. You know, 35 cents of every dollar that you earn gross should not be, or should more than that should not be spent on a house. So, right. 35 cents or less is 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 answer. The lower the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to going back to deferred gratification. You know, if you can find a house that you can live in for the next six seven years and be half the payment, do it. It's really an interesting uh, topic. It's been great talking to you. I love this stuff. Okay, yeah, cool. anytime. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.